How many of you remember, or maybe you still remember, the game Connect the Dots? Remember those? Love them. I don't know if you still enjoy them, but I, I, I remember them as a kid and, and playing on them, whether it be a long car ride or just at home, and playing Connect the Dots, whether it be a, a coloring book or whether it be pages that were printed out for me. But what's the purpose of that game? The point of the game is to connect the dots, following the numbers, following the letters, whatever it might be, one, two, three, four, five. And the purpose of that game is to reveal a picture that is on the page. You, you cannot see it because it's kind of faded. It's not there. You have to connect the dots in order for that picture to be revealed. And I would dare say that today for me, if you stuck a Connect the Dots game in front of me, I would play it right away. And it's a lot of fun, and I know my boys, as they grow up, they're going to enjoy the same drawing pictures uh, with the Connect the Dots. But the thing with the game is you have to connect the dots. You cannot go from 1 to 5, from 5 to 8, from 8 to 20, and 20 to 25, because what's going to happen? It's not going to come out the way it's intended. The picture is going to be marred. It's going to, not going to have any form, recognizable form, and if it is recognizable, it's going to be something totally opposite than what the original author intended. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 this morning, we have God connecting the dots for us, if you will, on how he desires our different relationships to function. And so my challenge for you this morning as we look at these, and, and please, as, as we look through them, some of them are applicable to us, and some of them are not. But still, I think we can find application in each one of them. But the challenge this morning for us is to let Christ mandate our relationships. Let Christ mandate our relationships. You say, Pastor, what relationships are you talking about? What mandates are there? Well, let me give you four of them and four instructions that God has for us. And the first one is found in verses 1 through 3, and it's simply this Children, you fulfill God's intention for your relationship with your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, I don't know about you, but I had that quoted to me a lot when I was a kid, and I'm sure you did too. But what does this mean? Children, obey your parents. It means obedience to your parents is required, boys and girls, even though you might not want to do it. The word obey here means to follow instructions. It can also be translated as subject to, put yourself underneath. And the command here, and it's a command, it's designed to show that your obedience to your parents is your preferred action. Now you do have a choice here. This isn't an idea of obey or die. This is the idea of obey or are there, there are consequences for not obeying. So there is free will that the children do have to obey. And Paul is using, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this command to get children to realize that they are to obey their parents. Notice also with me that in the obeying of parents, it's limited. Obey your parents, not Bobby's parents or Jody's parents. Obey your parents. So I as a parent cannot come into another child-parent relationship and tell that child what to do. 
I cannot insist upon obedience from that child because it is not mine to insist. Now there should be respect that children give to those who are older to them. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32 says, You shall stand up for the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So there is respect that is supposed to be given by children to all uh, parents and adults. But obedience is limited to their own. So it's a requirement, boys and girls. And, and as much as I struggled it when I was a kid, and perhaps you did it as well, it's still required of children today. But know something also about this passage of Scripture. Christ defines the obedience It says, in the Lord. That little phrase, in the Lord, qualifies the obedience. It it defines it for us. Boys and girls, you're not just supposed to obey. You're supposed to obey in the Lord. So what does that mean? So, Pastor, what does that mean? It means you obey your parents in all things, except for when what your parents demand does not line up with the word and character of Christ. So if your, your mom or dad says, go take that candy bar from the store, you don't have to obey. Because why? Because the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. If your parent says, you know, I want you to go over and to um, move uh, that item from your, our neighbor's garage to ours, you can say, no, I'm not going to do that. And you don't have to obey because the Bible says, you shall not cover it and you shall not steal. So the obedience that children are supposed to give to their parents is defined by the Word of God and nothing else. So if it is something that is not in the Word of God and the Word of God does not expressly uh, deny it and say not to do it, then children, we're supposed to, you're supposed to obey. But this phrase also does something that not only qualifies the statement of obedience. It also motivates obedience. Because ultimately, boys and girls, when you obey your parents, you are obeying the Lord. You're obeying Jesus. quote from a commentary that I read on this says, Paul thus appeals to children to have an obedience that transcends the parental because I said so to a motivation rooted in respect for the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We all heard the phrase, because I said so. And that, that's a legitimate reason. And perhaps for you, as, as it was for me, that was reason enough because what would happen next if you didn't obey was very severe. But Paul uses this phrase to override that phrase to give a motivation to children to obey, not because your parents said so or say so. It's because you love the Lord. And you respect Him. And He says, obey your parents and therefore you're going to do it. And the phrase also sets the bar for obedience. Jesus determines your obedience, not yourself. You can't say to your mom and dad, I will not obey. I will not do this. I will not do that. Jesus says you obey your parents in the Lord. You don't have a say, but Jesus does. And as you obey, you're obeying Him as you obey your parents. And He is the one who motivates and gives you the standard for your obedience. For the few boys and girls this morning, are you obeying your parents? It's not easy. 
I get it? We've all been kids. We all wanted to do our own thing. We all wanted to, to, to run away and, and uh, rebel. But are you obeying your parents? Obedience is the right thing for you to do. For this is right. Okay? We all heard it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay? What does this mean? That word for gives you the reason you are to obey. And the reason is the right thing to do. And it emphasizes here, for this is right, that it's not for the here and now. It's not for the past. It's not for the future. It's the right thing for you to do now. And it will continue to be the right thing for you to do, no matter what happens. You are to continually obey. The word right here means to, to have a conformity to a high standard of behavior. Now, this term was used in the ancient uh, world to refer to model citizens. You know, they, they were uh, living their lives rightly. So it is right for you to obey your parents. It's the right thing to do. It's the standard that you're supposed to attain. And it's right before God as well. Now let me qualify this as well. Some of you are thinking, well, does that mean I have to obey? I'm X number of years old. I've moved out of the house. Um, I'm doing my own thing. I think we can confidently say from Scripture and from this passage here that this is required for children who are at home and not adult children who have moved out from being under the authority structure of their parents. So this is for my two boys at home. Uh, who are watching on the live feed right now. They're supposed to obey. Why? Because dad and mom are in charge. God has placed us in that authority structure. And they have the, the command to obey. But once you leave that authority structure, you, know, you move out on your own, you get married, so on and so forth, this is no longer a requirement. But there are requirements for us who have moved out of the house. And that's what he says next in verse 2. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise. What does this mean? No matter the age, children are always to honor their parents. No matter how old you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, you are still to honor your parents. Verses 2 and 3 is a quote from Exodus 20, verse 12, as we read this morning. And the reason that God includes that in the Ten Commandments was to show the necessity of honoring one's parents. The word honor means to show high regard for. And the construction of the word emphasizes personal responsibility and continued obedience. Another commentator writes this, it reinforces his instruction to the children to obey your parents, but goes beyond it since it extends to adult children who have left the home. Jesus himself reiterated the importance of this commandment when he criticized the Pharisees for effectively overturning it. Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7, Jesus comes and interacts with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had constructed religious uh, commands in such a way that one could avoid that responsibility of honoring one's parents through different um, actions. And Jesus says, no, that's not right. And also, when he mentions this in his summary of the commandments to the rich young ruler, you remember that story as, as he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And honor your father and mother is included in that. But Paul notes 
as well. That this is a commandment with a promise. So this motivation for us to honor our parents. And what is that promise? The promise is long life and prosperity. That's the, that's the idea of the word may be well with you. It can be translated good or beneficial. There are benefits for us to obey, to, uh, to obey and honoring our parents. That phrase, live long, is, means to, what it means, live long. The idea here is that prosperity and long life are the results of honoring one's parents. Now, if you go back, as we looked at this morning in Exodus chapter 20, the Old Testament adds the idea of living long in the land. And so that promise, while exclusively for Israel back in Exodus chapter 20, also has principles for us today. That honoring our parents in whatever form results in prosperity and success and long life. So that leads me to ask the question, we as adults here this morning who, whose parents are still living, are we honoring our parents? You know, you can honor your parents even though you disagree with them. I remember having several years ago uh, teaching a teen Sunday school class and I had this girl, Ingrid, Ingrid asked me a question, and I forget what we were talking about, but she said, how, how can I honor my parents even when I disagree with them? Great question. We can honor them, and even in disagreement. They may come to us and say, well, I don't like what you're doing here and here, and, and, and how we honor them is we do not talk down to them, we do not disregard their opinion, but we say, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, you don't agree with me, but this is how we've come to this decision, and this is how I've come to this decision, and that's still honoring you don't have to agree, but you're still supposed to honor. Still supposed to have a, a high regard for one's parents. You do not degrade them, show contempt for them in your actions and words, or disregard their opinions. In all things, whether spoken or acted, we are to honor our parents. And that's tough. Because if you're like me, and you know, some of, for some of you, your parents have passed on, and, but my parents are still alive, sometimes we want to come back at our parents and say, you did this wrong, or you, you messed me up, or whatever it might be. But honestly, that's not honoring. And it's true, they may, they may have done some things wrong. They may have um, allowed things to happen that they shouldn't have. But even in that, we're still supposed to honor them to uphold them in high regard, even in disagreement. So can I ask you a question this morning to both sets of children in this room? Are you honoring and fulfilling your responsibilities towards your parents? If you're still a child at home, are you obeying? Even when mom and dad ask you some tough things to do. Even when it might be nigh impossible in your mind. Are you obeying your parents? And for, thus, for, for those of us whose parents are still alive, are we honoring them? Are we talking well about them? Even, and I, I, I don't, maybe this might be a little bit of a stretch, but even if they've gone, even if they've passed, are we still honoring them? It's easy to talk about someone's faults, isn't it? It's easy to talk about someone's failures, someone's struggles. 
especially in parenting. But are we honoring our parents? Are we showing them high regard? Not talking down about them in the, in, in, with your buddies, fan, other family members. Not degrading them, not disregarding their opinions. You can, you can have an opinion and, and disagree. Are we holding them in high honor and high regard? Second group, second instruction that Paul gives. Not only are children, you fulfill your responsibilities toward your parents, but secondly, dads, you raise your children according to God's pattern. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the instruction, excuse me, in the training and admonition of the Lord. Again, this is something we've heard a lot, but dads in this room, what, what, what does this mean? Dads are to control their reactions and words towards their children so they do not become angry as a result. So here Paul lays out a responsibility that we as fathers have towards our children. We have a responsibility towards them. They have a responsibility towards us. And that responsibility means, is defined as not provoking them. And the idea of do not provoke means to make angry. And the idea behind the word is to say or do something that arouses anger in a person. So it could be a harsh word. It could be a physical action that is done to a person that causes them to be angry. Notice that this is a command and must not be ignored. Do not provoke. It's command form. It's an imperative. Again, one of the authors that I read says this, Fathers should carefully weigh the potential impact of their words and actions before responding to their children. This passage effectively rules out reactionary flare-ups, overly harsh words, insults, sarcasm, nagging, demeaning comments, inappropriate teasing, unreasonable demands, and anything else that can be perceived as provocative. Paul mentions the same thing in Colossians 3.21 where he says, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. So dads, when you're talking to your kids, and for me this, is, this hits home, so I have two young kids at home. The way I talk to them and the way I interact with them matters. And I better be careful that I do not use words or actions to make them angry. We've all heard the stories of dads using sarcasm or insults to their kids and their kids have reacted in anger or rebellion. And we as believers in Jesus Christ, dads, we're not supposed to do that. Dads use God's program to raise their children. So instead of, of going the world's way, provoking anger, reacting harshly, and all those different things, demeaning, inappropriate teasing, we use God's program. And what is God's program? It's this described in, in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, 
when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You bring them up, training them in God's ways. The word bring them up means to to bring them up from childhood. It's the same word that's used back in uh, chapter 5, verse 29. We looked at it last week. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes, that's the word there, but nourishes and cherishes it. The command here is to be is, is not an option for disregarding. So bring them up. Train them. As, as you bring them up through the, through the years, train them according to God's program. And God's program involves two ways. Tra- training and admonition. The word training here means the act of providing guidance for responsible living. Basically, rules for life. We can, we can look to the book of Proverbs for that. Proverbs was, was written from Solomon to his son to guide him in life, to give him rules to follow that would help him to be successful. In the same vein of giving rules for life, we are to give admonition. The word admonition here means to counsel about avoiding or ceasing some improper course of conduct. It literally means stop doing disastrous things to yourself. And it lays the responsibility of the response at the child's feet, but dads, our responsibility is to warn, to give counsel against doing something that could have devastating effects. I will use my father-in-law as an example. He was here several months ago, had the opportunity to preach, but my father-in-law is big into guns and, and loves them and loves to talk about them and use them. But he's also big into gun safety. And if you ever go out shooting with him and he sees you do something wrong, he will get on your case. Not because he hates you, not because he, he's worried about his own safety. He wants you to be safe with the instrument that you're using. He's gotten on me a couple times when I've gone out shooting with him for not doing the right things, not having the safety on, not pointing the gun downwards and away from people. He's, he's so in tune with how a gun is supposed to operate that he will warn someone, whether it be his kids, grandkids, or someone else, that what they're doing may have devastating consequences. And that's what dads are supposed to do, is to warn so as my two boys grow up, and Lord willing, if, if more come along, I will have the responsibility to warn. To say, hey, Josiah, that is not a good idea. It's going to result in some consequences for you. I would not do that. Notice where the source of this training comes from. It is from the Lord. And He determines how it goes. We as dads do not have the right to insert our own opinion or will in training our kids. Again, I know I'm speaking to parents whose kids have grown up and out of the home, so in some respects, if you're a dad this morning and your kids have grown up and you have grandkids, some of this doesn't apply to you, but still, I would ask the question for all of us, whether as as dads, dads, are we following this program? But if you're a dad who's got kids out of the house and grandkids now, or you're a mom who, who uh, has watched your husband grow up training your kids, can I ask this question? Are we encouraging the dads of today to follow God's method of raising kids? 
You know, there's a lot of philosophies. There are a lot of books that have been written out about raising children. But are we as a church, whether as a, as a grandparent, as a dad, or as a mom, are we encouraging other dads to follow God's program? Because God's program is successful. Yes, the responsibility is up to the child, but still, as we, we seek as dads not to provoke our children in wrath, we, we bring them up in the nurture, the counseling, the training, and admonition of the Lord. Are we encouraging dads to do that? I hope that we are. Because God's program always works. Third instruction, third group of people from verses 5 through 8. Not only children, you fulfill your responsibility toward your parents. Dads, you raise your children basically God's way, according to God's plan. Thirdly, those who are under authority, you obey the authority as you would obey Christ. Verses 5 through 8. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Now context here. Bond servants, where bond servants mean slaves. There were several types of slaves back in Paul's day. Some were indentured slaves, meaning that they, they sold themselves to slavery because of their financial condition and so it was not uncommon for that to happen. Others were born slaves. And unless their master freed them, they, it was their life. So we really don't have in our culture today a proper understanding of that. That is so foreign to us. Even though at, at times, uh, recent statistic I heard, there are, at any time there are 270,000 uh, people in the world today in slavery. And so trying to picture that for Paul, writing to people who had no will of their own, they had very few rights, and if they had any violations to their account, they could be killed or dealt with very severely. Trying to picture that in our terminology has been kind of difficult, but that's why I use the phrase, those who are under authority. Because that, then it, that's still the master-slave, there's an authority a, a structure there. So that's, I'm going to use that phrase as a description of this instruction. Those who are under authority are commanded to obey the authority. Be obedient. Okay, Same term used in verse 1. Paul describes their obedience as to those who are your masters according to the flesh, or human masters. He's using that term to di differentiate between human masters and the ultimate master. We all have had at one time in our lives bosses and our human bosses some of us are here our human bosses this morning but there's a difference between a human supervisor and the ultimate supervisor jesus christ those who are under authority are to obey reverently and genuinely with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart. What does this mean? They're to do it with a respectful attitude. Fear and trembling, both words together have the idea of fear and respect. So in other words, they emphasize a deep fear for masters, whether inwardly or outwardly. We all know that we can be outwardly a different person and inwardly a different person as well. So Paul uses these two words to say that your respect for those who are over you is to be both 
on the outside evident as well as on the inside. They're also to have a genuine attitude within sincerity of heart. The word sincerity here means frankness. The idea here is complete honesty and single focus. When you're under that authority, there is no deviation or deception when you obey. You don't do it so they'll go on to the next thing. You don't do it so they'll get off your back. No, you'll do it because they asked you to and that is your focus. Be obedient to those who are masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Your standard for obeying your master, your, uh, those who, uh, your authority is Christ. Obey them as you would obey the Lord. For he is your ultimate master. Notice also that Paul says those who are under authority are to obey passionately even if the work is not enjoyable. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Eye service here means, means to not be fake. It's performed only as outward and to make an impression in the owner's presence. Because as soon as the owner is gone, guess what? They're back to doing their own thing goofing off or whatever they might be doing. Paul says, do your work not pleasing men. What does men pleasers mean? It means to make an impression on others. So both words convey the idea of doing work to please the owner only when he is watching. There's no heart behind it. Paul kind of gives this idea in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, for he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? For if I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul recognized the difference between pleasing man and pleasing God. And here he highlights that again as a, lat, as a motivation to not fulfill, to fulfill one's responsibility. Don't fake it. Don't fake it. Their obedience also is governed by their status before the Lord, but as bondservants of Christ. So, so not looking at yourself as one under authority, but looking at yourself as one under the authority of Christ changes things. You ultimately serve Him, and therefore you view your work as being done for Him. And you do it from the heart, doing the will of God from the heart. As a result, slaves were to obey their masters and do the work that they were assigned from their heart as God ordains. God's will for them in that moment was to work for their masters. And if you're in a job today and, and you have people over you, that's, your, that's the will of God for you. To sincerely and honestly do your work even though it's not enjoyable. And we've, been, we've all been there. We've been with, a, with, a, with a, a boss who has not been very pleasant and work that has not been very good or very enjoyable but it's still supposed to be done. It's still supposed to be undertaken. Why? Because that's what God's will is for us, and we're working for Him. Those under authority are to obey with a right perspective. Look at this as well. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. What does the word goodwill mean? It means to have a positive attitude in a right relationship. So a better way of saying this, probably a better translation would be, here would be right attitude. Okay, so you can insert with a right attitude doing service. 
doing service here means to, to act or conduct oneself as in total service to another. It's a continual action here. So the work done for earthly masters or authorities is ultimately done for the Lord. So whatever is assigned can be done, not begrudgingly, but with a desire to please the Lord, doing it for Him. With a right attitude. And, and, and this helps us in our work, for those of us who are still working, that no matter what is assigned to us, we can still have a right attitude because we're working for the Lord, ultimately. And that helps. Because I've been there. I've been in work situations where the boss was terrible. You wanted to haul off and let him have it. And you didn't enjoy the work. And what helps you get through that situation is to remember that you work for a greater master. You work for a greater boss. And he's determined that you will do this work and you can do it for him. Even if the work itself is not enjoyable, even if your boss is a pain in the neck, you can still do the work because you're working for him. Notice also, lastly, in this, this passage, that there is reward for obeying authority. Knowing that, verse 8, whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or fear. The word, the word knowing here is constructed to show that as a result of our position in Christ, we know that he rewards those who do good. It's not the old condition that kind of just did stuff to get rewards and could not, you know, the possibility of them receiving reward or not re- receiving reward. Ultimately, there is reward for doing good. And that comes from Christ. We receive it from him. The idea of the word receive is to receive a reward. So what does Paul mean by this phrase, he will receive the same from the Lord whether he is a slave or free? The idea here is, though no one may notice, the worker or the slave who obeys and does good work will receive a reward from the master who notices all things. God sees. You may be in a job right now that you don't enjoy. Underneath a boss that you don't really appreciate it. But God notices your work. God notices what you do. And you, if you do the good work, will receive a reward from Him because you work for Him ultimately. So that leads me to ask this morning, are you following God's instructions for interacting with those who are over you? If you're still in a job this morning, maybe you're just starting out, maybe you're in the middle of your career, maybe you're toward the end. Are you interacting the way God wants you to with your boss? Who may be the worst boss out there, who may be just the pits, but are you working for him, ultimately realizing do you ultimately work for the great master, the one who sees what you do and notices it and rewards it? Fourth, Last group of people that Paul addresses here in this instruction as those with authority. So what does he say? Those with authority, you are unbiased in your management. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also in heaven is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So again, the, the master-slave relationship is different 
So that's why I term it those with authority. The same attitudes that those under authority have, or to have towards those who are over them, are to be replicated by the authority to those who are under him or her. Same things is the word same thing. So the same things, not serving as with eye service or as men pleasers, not obeying from the heart, being sincere, are to be replicated by those who are in authority. Not that they are obeying those underneath them, but that they are sincere, that they are doing it, their authority, as they would under the guidance of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Those with authority are not to terrorize those who are under their authority. Giving up threatening. Now, the, the, the literal term there is stop threatening. And that was common back in that day where slaves could be punished for the least offense. There was one situation that I read of. It just One of the commentaries said there was a master who expected while he was interacting with his slaves that if they made even a slightest sound while he was eating or drinking or doing something else, they could be whipped for that offense. I mean, imagine that. Being punished for just breathing loud. So Paul says, you who are masters in the church in Ephesus, you who have slaves, stop threatening. The present tense of that verb means to stop it now and stop it in the future. Don't do it again. We might describe the word threatening as bullying today. Again, for the slaves, it could be physical harm, it could be emotional harm, it could be relational harm. Families could be separated, slaves could be sold. Slaves had no rights, and masters could do whatever they wanted. Which for the Jews was a prohibition by law. In Leviticus 25:43, when it came to interacting with slaves who were of their own kin, Jesus said, or the, God says to his nation of Israel, "You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God." So those with authority are not to be bullies, not to, to be aggravated towards their employees or those underneath them. They're supposed to stop threatening. Don't terrorize. Then notice here also as well, both those under authority and those with authority have the same master in heaven who treats them equally. Knowing that your own master. Now, the New King James translation, which I'm using, and the King James, use that phrase, your own master. But if you look at the original language, the possessive pronoun, your, is there, but also the possessive pronoun, there, is there, T-H-E-I-R. So what Paul is doing there is he's using those, both those possessive pronouns to show that both individuals work for the same master. So another way to say it is knowing that your master and theirs is in heaven. Paul says, you guys work for the same guy. You work for the same Lord. You're no different from one another in that regard. And he does not show partiality. The word partiality means favoritism. The original meaning meant to prefer someone based upon their wealth or their appearance, position, status, or wealth. The idea is here is uh, James talks about this when he talks about the man who comes into the congregation with a gold ring 
And you put him in the highest place and someone comes in with a, a shabby cloak, he said you put him in the lowest place, that's showing partiality, that's playing favorites. The idea here is that someone comes onto the ball field or the playground and they're the best kicker, or they're the best catcher, and so you choose them for your team and someone else comes on the, on the field who's not so great and you say, nah, I don't want you to go over there. Paul says there's no, God does not play favorites. And neither should those who are masters or supervisors. They should treat their servants, workers, fairly as God does. Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. So if the ultimate master that we work for doesn't show partiality or play favorites, why should we? We work for the same individual, ultimately. And Paul reminds those who are in charge that that is their responsibility. God doesn't play favorites, and neither should they. So that leads me to ask this question. If you're an authority this morning, in a work situation, maybe military, whatever it might be, are you using or abusing your authority? If you're abusing your authority, you're disobeying. You are, you are in direct violation of God's Word. And if you're using it properly, you're treating your employees, your, your workers, your soldiers, whatever it might be, with respect, sincerity. You're following God's plan. Because ultimately you report to Him and He doesn't play favorites. He's not impressed with what you do at work. Your extracurricular activities or your, your way of doing things, managing things, doesn't impress Him. He desires that you follow his plan, using your authority properly in relationship to those who are under you, underneath you. So are you using or abusing your authority? When you connect the dots, you get a picture, don't you? It could be just a simple picture of an animal. It could be a brilliant picture. But I hope we've seen that God, through this passage, has connected the dots for us to see how he wants us to function in our different relationships. Children, both grown and still at home, you fulfill God's intention for your relationship with your parents. If you're still at home, you obey them in the Lord. If you're away from home, you honor them. You don't talk down to them. You don't disregard them. You hold them in high honor. Dads, you raise your children according to God's pattern. The response is up to them. But you have the responsibility to train them God's way. If you're under authority this morning, you're, you're in a job, you obey the authority as you, you would obey Christ. He is the ultimate person you work for, and then those with authority this morning, you are unbiased in your, in your, in your management. You don't play favorites. You don't threaten. Because you work for someone who doesn't. So why should you? As you and I navigate these relationships, or know of those who are doing so, may we follow his plan and encourage others to do the same.